son therefore shall make you sweet, he shall be freed indeed. We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for September 4th, 2011. And today it's going to be kind of a three-part study. The first part being a question that I received regarding Genesis 6-2, regarding the sons of God question, uh, the whole um, question there. Is if are these really angels that this is in reference to? And I'm going to go through and prove it biblically. And it's going to be I, I've touched on the subject before, but this is going to be more of a just an in-depth study on that one particular issue, and hopefully put that to bed uh, because I think these scriptures, as you'll see, bear out that uh, it's obvious what the answer is to that question, and it has a lot of bearings on today's day and age, because the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. After that, we're going to get into a study, uh, not a separate study, but just we're going to update you on Fukushima, um, the horrific situation that is continuing to be horrific regarding that subject, and um, then we're going to segue into some things about uh, vaccinations, uh, the potential for a, com- uh, uh, a coming H5N1 flu pandemic, which was the what we talked a lot about in 06 when I did that tour uh, regarding the avian flu. And um, we're going to be looking at that subject in depth. And we're also going to be looking at proactive ways you can protect ourselves. I just don't want to present information and then give you no remedy for what we're talking about. Obviously, the main remedy is getting on your knees Regarding this in prayer, um, but there's other things we can do from a physical standpoint, if the Lord would so lead you in that direction to prepare as well. The Bible says the prudent man foreseeth evil and hideth himself, and a simple pass on and are punished. We're going to be looking at things that you can do to um, protect yourself from the radiation, from potential pandemics, ways that you can purify water. Uh, I found a new product recently that... um, it's very interesting regarding that. We're going to be looking at that a little bit. And um, also, particularly this week, it would be good that we're all in prayer regarding this coming 9-11 anniversary. I've heard a lot of different things on the internet. A lot of it's theory and conjecture. So I'm not really reporting on it, but it, there's a lot of plans I've seen laid out saying that there may be false flag nuclear events going on that day. And um, or terror attacks and things of this nature. There's been a lot of posturing by the government. We talked about this last week that Obama was talking about with 9-11. And um, it seems to me they're telegraphing their punches regarding that. So I would think the main thing that we would want to do is be in prayer about that situation. Also, with this with this comment, Elenin, uh, there's a lot of varying information regarding Elenin. And I've done... A couple other studies you can key in at contendingfortruth.com as well as the other su- subjects I've covered today, Fukushima, vaccinations, uh, swine flu, avian flu. If you want to know more about those subjects, I've done more in-depth studies on them in times past. Uh, you can go up to contendingfortruth.com, key those subjects into the search box, and it'll pretty much show you where we've covered those subjects. And you can listen to those teachings as well. But just some things that 
you know, really to be in prayer about, I think, more than anything. And um, let's go ahead and get started on the study for today. The question I received is from Julio. He said, Brother Scott, I wanted to share this with you. In Genesis 6-2, it says that the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives. And some teach that the sons of gods are angels that came down from heaven. To, I think to me it seems like they were fallen angels, uh, which would make them demons. Well, we're going to look at that subject. Is Are fallen angels the exact same things as demons? which is what a lot of people assume, and and I do not believe that to be the case, and we're going to show you why. Then he goes on to say, but I can show you from the Bible that, in fact, there is no scripture that teaches that angels are the sons of God. That, in fact, we as believers are called the sons of God. Now, this is obviously, I believe, a new listener. Uh, We were getting a lot more new listeners lately, and I'm getting some questions that on my email that I mean I have so covered in depth in times past and there's no obvious way that somebody that's a new listener is going to know exactly my stance on every single thing or have listened to all my studies and that's why I would say you'd want to maybe go back and like for this particular thing you'd want to key in like Nephilim the word Nephilim uh, probably the best word to search for uh regarding this particular subject, because I've really got one into Genesis 6 in depth on a number of studies. We're just going to cover this one particular aspect of Genesis 6 today regarding the sons of God. But he's saying there is no scripture that teaches angels are the sons of God. There's that This is a fact, and I'm going to teach you, yes, it's a fact that they are angels, and that they can only be angels. And as dogmatic as some people may want to be on the subject, I'm going to be just as dogmatic because I really believe I can show you 100% from Scripture that these are angels that they're in reference to in Genesis 6-2. And when it's all said and done, it's the only thing that makes sense anyway. And we're going to show you where these other alternate theories of the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain came from. And I'll give you a hint right now. It came from Catholicism. Specifically, Augustine of Hippo. The guy, the Catholic theologian guy. He was really, really overweight. That's why they called him a hippo. Anyway, just kidding. Teasing, teasing. Anyway, so yeah, uh, that's where it originated from. Or at least in part it sure originated from that source. And a lot of the things that I find that we believe in modern day Christianity comes from Catholicism. If you look at the roots of it. Because... Protestants, the word Protestant, they were the ones that came out of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther, you know, the 95 thesis nailed to the Catholic Church door or whatever. They came out, they were protesting what was going on in the Catholic Church. Therefore, they came out of the Catholic Church with obvious baggage from Catholicism. Remember, the Bible says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Leaven is... um, one of the main ways it's referred to in scripture is bad doctrine. Jesus Christ said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the church leaders of the time in the Jewish community. And then he says, which is their doctrine? They've leavened the word of God. Well, when you come out of a cult, essentially, which is what I refer to Catholicism as, it's the largest pseudo-Christian cult on the planet, Well, don't you think you're going to carry possibly some baggage with you if you come out of that? 
This is why I'm very reluctant to go back to, you know, I'm very reluctant to turn to man for my interpretation of particular things, particularly if it's very obvious what it really means. If we were just to sit down and read the scriptures apart from a man's interpretation, just sit down and and compare scripture with scripture, rightly divide the word of truth, comparing precept with precept, just a, a lot of times too, if you believe a certain theory, many times what I found as a baby Christian is I would read this book or read that book and then I would get buy into something hook, line, and sinker. And a pastor came to me at one point, I was having an issue about a particular thing, and he said, he asked me the question. He said, if you were to read, if you weren't to have read a particular book or whatever on a particular subject, would you have ever come to that conclusion by just reading the Bible alone, apart from some man's interpretation? Would you ever have went there in your head? And a lot of times... It's like, no, I would have never done that. And it might take a 500-page book to fully convince you of a particular biblical point that is actually not even true. It takes 500 pages, or 1,000 pages, to convince you that this is the way it, 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 it is, and there's only one way, and this is the, it's, this is the correct interpretation. Yet it takes a 1,000-page book in order to do that. The Bible says that uh, the word of God is of no private interpretation. Which a lot of times, this is how cults get started. Oh, I privately, oh, God showed me this. It's kind of funny, he didn't show anybody else in the history of the planet this, but just you because you're so special. Now, I'm not saying there's not good books. I'm not saying that there's not good books that aren't sound theologically and things of this nature. It's just, I'm just saying, be careful. And that's the question you should always come back to. If you hadn't have read this book or this article or whatever, would you have ever come to that conclusion from a biblical standpoint on your own if you only had the Bible to go by? This is why you really don't hear me saying, oh, read this author and read that author and read this one. About the only book I read other from a biblical standpoint is the Bible. I'm not saying I don't ever read commentaries and things of that nature. But the Bible is what I really tend to gear, gear toward. And, and uh, the Bible talks about, you know, that when Jesus Christ goes, it was expedient for him to go. It was, it was a good thing for him to go from the standpoint of when he goes, he will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that dwells within every born-again Bible-believing Christian, who will teach you and lead you and guide you in all truth. You know, my sheep hear my voice and they know my name, as Jesus Christ talked about. Well, that's something that if you're not feeling that, as far as, I, I don't feel like I'm being led of the Lord in these types of things. Well, number one, check, make sure you're saved. Okay? And if you're not, go to the contendingfortruth.com website and kick, click on True Salvation. And there's a whole list of sermons and just listen to those in the order listed because that's the main thing. The Holy Spirit dwells inside a born-again Bible-believing Christian. And um, the Holy Spirit is what guides you in truth. The Holy Spirit is what really is the main factor that helps you memorize scripture as well. I believe that, you know, and, and um, he can, you, he can recall, you will re- start to recall things. And if you're not, if you're not feeling like, well, I'm not really, I'm not really good at memorizing scripture. and I'm not really good at, at interpreting the Bible. Ask for greater discernment. Pray for greater discernment. Pray for 
greater understanding. Pray for more wisdom. I mean, the Bible essentially says, you know, ask and, and I will give. And if you lack wisdom, if any man lack wisdom, ask. And he will be given it. And a lot of times it's just the people don't ask for it. You know, they might be asking for something, you know, that, I don't know, things like just maybe financial things or things that, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, really aren't going to benefit you. And there's a, you could do a whole teaching on that as well. But those are things that you can pray for, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, true knowledge. And, um, you know, they're very, very important to do that. So, let's just get into this, this teaching here. Uh, and he's saying that the, the end of the statement, he says, the fact is, we as believers are called the sons of God. Yes, in the New Testament, is my response. Now, my response fully is, notice the only verses, and he cited other verses that are uh, regarding the sons of God in the New Testament. Okay, And I understand how somebody could get confused on this. And that's why we're going to rightly divide the word of truth today to show you what the obvious answer is. Okay, Notice, the only verses you can cite, and this is my response to him, proving that the sons of God are Christians are in the New Testament, which is derived from Greek and Aramaic. Okay, But if we go to the Old Testament comparing scripture with scripture, which is derived from a totally different language of Hebrew, the term sons of God is only used in terms of angels. In other words, the context of the Old Testament, there's five instances in the Old Testament where that term, exact term, sons of God, is used. Five scriptures. Okay? If you look at this, and we're going to look at all five, it can only be in relation to angels. It cannot be in relation, as it's used in the New Testament, to a New Testament Bible-believing Christian. It's a different usage in the New Testament. Okay, it's it, And it can't be the other, and we're going to look at why it can't be. It's very obvious when we get done with this why. So, here are all five instances where this phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament that are obviously in reference to angels if you look at the context of the verses. And we're going to read them right now. First one, again, the, when he asked about Genesis 6-2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives, all which they chose. Now, notice here just something interesting. Well, here, let's read the next verse, Genesis 6-4, and then I'll make that point. <clears throat> there, were, there were giants in the earth in those days, which was the prodigy, the offspring of this union between these sons of God and these daughters of men. <clears throat> there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown this is where we get a lot of our greek a lot of the legends you know hercules and achilles and all this other stuff a lot of it came i would almost guarantee virtually all of it came from the union of fallen angels to women and the offspring you know, and this is where, again, a lot of those legends come from. Notice here, <clears throat> obviously in these two verses, the sons of God are listed as distinct and separate when compared to the daughters of men. In other words, they're not humans. Now, again, I'm going to prove this way beyond that point. We're not going to stop here. But look at, look at the two verses. That the sons of God 
saw the daughters of men. If they were human, if they were the same thing, why are they compared as different? Why is it that they're looked at as two distinct, almost races of beings? The sons of God saw the daughters of men. If they were the, if they were the sons of men, why didn't it just say that? Wouldn't it have said the sons of men saw the daughters of men? Of course, that's kind of redundant. Why did it make this point that they're describing this separate race, or seemingly a separate race? The sons of God saw the daughters of men, something different than what they were, because they were angels. Okay, so, in other words, they're not humans. This is very similar to this verse, to the verse also referenced regarding fallen angels, uh, but in this case, it's during the end times we are living in. What verse is that? The verse you've heard me quote many times. Daniel 2.43. And it's describing the very, very, very end times that we're going into right now. Okay? This is, the, and it's, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, it's, it's describing the exact same time in those two verses where you saw the sons of God and the daughters of men labeled as, as distinct and separate is the same as Daniel 2.43, which says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. Why? Because they're separate races of of entities. It's human and angelic. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they, something separate and distinct, shall mingle themselves with what? Another something separate and distinct. The seed of men. Very, very similar to the sons of God saw the daughters of men. They're separate and distinct. And they're both described, one's in Genesis 6, and one's describing the end times we're moving into. And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So we should expect this to be. This shouldn't be something that's surprising us. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. One to another, separate and distinct. What does that word cleave mean? If you look at what the word means from a uh, from the Noah's uh, the Noah um, Noah Webster eighteen twenty eight dictionary, which defines words more closely in the biblical time that they were written, um, it defines it as to aptly fit. To a good fit, in other words. Okay? And again, does this have anything to do with all these alien abduction scenarios that we've seen and people claim by the millions upon millions to have been abducted and many of them turn up pregnant and then the baby disappears after a certain amount of months of gestation? You know? Is this the breeding program? Wasn't there a breeding program taking place during Genesis 6? <laughs> I would say pretty massive. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. You know, there were giants in the earth in those days, you know, and they bear children to them the same became my, was that not a breeding program? Sure it was. Well, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So we should expect the same thing to be perpetuated today. It's just that it's more subtle today. They could get away with being bold and in your face, I believe, in Genesis 6 when they came down. But in today's day and age, they've suited, these fallen angels have adapted them to our culture, they've, what would be culturally acceptable, and it's been incrementalism over many, many decades. 
to get to where we're at now. And you look at all the brainwashing through Hollywood and the media and all this stuff. And again, we've done so many studies on that, I don't even know where to start. So, they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Well, what are iron and clay? They're two separate, distinct substances. They're not alike. And they don't readily combine. You can, there is a way I would imagine to mix them, because it's the feet of iron and clay, right? It's the last stage of where Jesus Christ the stone which the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone is going to come back and smash that empire in the end times, essentially at the Battle of Armageddon. Well, it's iron mixed with clay. You can do it, but it doesn't aptly fit. It doesn't cleave one to another nicely. Just a side note there. Okay, so let's go further. Now let's look at the other instances where the sons of God are used in the Old Testament. Three other verses. Because if you, if you just have those verses to read, you'd be like, well, I'm not really sure what this is in reference to. But we've got three other ones where it's very clear what the sons of God, that phrase means in the Old Testament. Job 38.4 says, now this is God essentially asking um, uh, what, he's asking this question. Okay, Job 34, 38.4 says, um, oh, hold on here, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm sorry, Job 1.6, and then we'll go to that next. Job 1.6 says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now you're telling me that the sons of God are humans. Yeah, the, these human guys came with Satan and they went before the Lord. And this applies in heaven as well. This, this took place in a heavenly realm here. I mean, did it, did it take place at the 7-Eleven in the corner? You know? Or Sears? In their back room? No. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. These were good angels. Okay, now remember, they were good up until the time when they fell. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. They hadn't fallen quite yet. And they took them, when they took them wise, all that they chose, they had fallen and they were not referred to anymore, I believe, as the sons of God. They were essentially fallen angels at that point. They abdicated their rightful position. And we're going to look at two verses in the New Testament that it clearly confirm that and explain that that is exactly what they did and what their punishment was and where they were at right now to this day. Because we have New Testament verses where we can back all the stuff that we're saying here. So, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. I mean, is there any other modern day instance in the, in the whole Bible where you can see where men and Satan went before God and, and, you know, came to present themselves? No, I can't see that. And again, it says it in Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. This was in a heavenly realm aspect here. Okay, how could it be humans? The godly sons of Seth or whatever. Right. It was not. It was obvious in the next verse is the real clincher that we're going to go over. 
So, now, let's look at the full context of text of Job 38, verse 7. Let's start at Job 38, 4. God questioning... Um, let's see here. Okay, so I just wanted to give you the full context. This was... Verse 1 says... Um, <clears throat> then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So this is God talking to Job here. Okay. Where was thou, this verse 4, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? He's asking Job this. Now, man had not been created quite yet when God laid the foundations of the earth. And we're going to prove that he had not been created yet. Okay. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. I mean, God's school in Job right now. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Meaning, who, who hath laid the measures of the earth? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? God's asking Job all these questions about the foundations of the earth. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? There's actually a cornerstone of the earth. That's pretty cool. I mean, praise the Lord. Anyway, next verse. Now remember, this was all taking place when the foundations of the earth were laid. Next verse, Job 38, 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, God shouted for joy. Wow, the morning stars were singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And this was when the foundations of the earth was laid. Well, okay, how could this be in reference to humans when the time frame was when God laid the foundations of the earth in the seven-day creation. Because humans hadn't been created yet. Uh, where do you get that from? Right here. Let's go to Genesis 1.1, the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay? That's what he did in the beginning. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of the God... And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Okay, now this is first day, creation, essentially. Let's jump ahead in time a little bit. Let's go to Genesis one twenty six when he finally gets around to making man. And God said, let us make man in our image. I believe by when it says our, it's in reference to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, which he, had, which he had already created at that point, and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Sixth day. He rested on the seventh. So, the morning stars and the sons of God of Job 38.7 could only be in reference to angelic beings as neither man nor any other earthly creature had been created as of yet. I would say that's pretty much enough to convince me. Hopefully, and I again, I, the PDF for this will be up for September 4th. 2011, and um, uh, this will be on page uh, 2 to 3. Actually, no, this is actually the, the very first part of it. It's going to be several pages. 
But if you want to actually have the Bible study to look at as you're following along with this teaching, it's right here. I highlighted everything for you. I tried to do everything for you to make this like every week, kind of like one-stop shopping for current events, biblically related things, trying to reconcile them with Scripture. And that's what I do during the week. I just go through stuff and I try to... um, get it to a point where it's somewhat concise, where we can look at these subjects and um, not have to take all week to do so. That's my job, to do that, to a certain extent. So, going further, all these New Testament verses also confirm the sons of God referenced in the Old Testament were angels that fell. So where do we have New Testament confirmations of the sons of God falling? Okay, well, easy. 2 Peter 2, 4-6 through six says... For if God spared not the angels that sinned, these are the ones that fell, and if they didn't fall in Genesis 6, where do they fall? You know? If, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, now the word here for hell is Tartarus, if we look at the Greek. Okay? This is only occurs one time in the Bible. Only one time in the New Testament. Tartarus is a Another compartment of hell. It is referred to as the deepest abyss of hell. It's only used one time in the Bible. It's a special place God has in hell for the fallen angels. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's the only time it's used. And so let me read over. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be, re- to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. No, Notice, isn't it a coincidence that the verse here where we get confirmation about God chaining these angels in a special compartment of hell called Tartarus, we also, in the, and when did they fall? They fell during Genesis 6, first ones at least, because the Bible, the Bible says in Genesis 6, it says there were giants in the, day, in the world in those days and also after that. Well, there, I believe there were more angels that fell after the flood because the ones that fell before the flood were in Tartarus. They didn't get another shot at polluting humanity again. They were already in chains of everlasting darkness in Tartarus. So, in other words, there had to be more angels that fell after the flood. And where do we see more giants in the, um, the Old Testament? Well, obviously, when they went into the Promised Land. You know, we were as grasshoppers in their sight, and they were giants. They had whole races of giants. That is, really, the giants are talked about much more in that time frame than they were even in Genesis 6, which just mentioned, you know, here in Genesis 6, whereas there's a lot of places after that that they were mentioned. So, obviously, more angels fell. But isn't it funny that it says, For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice it's the same time frame. Genesis 6. The angels that fell during Genesis 6 are cast down to hell, and also he spared not the old world, but who did he save? Noah. The eight people on the ark. Noah being the you know, patriarch, the father of the three sons who had three wives. Ham, Japheth, and Shem. Okay, so notice it's the same time frame. Further confirmation here. We're talking about the same time frame. 
Okay, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning, and then now we have another <clears throat> confirmation here, <clears throat> and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an over, overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. Now, we're going to see the same comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah thrown into this in the next verse we're looking at. So bear with me, because I'll complete the thought there. Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels, which is another, here's another your, your next confirmation, And the angels, which kept not their first estate. What does that word mean? What does that phrase mean? It means the original place with God. Their habitation, their abode. It was where they belonged, but they fell. They left their original habitation. They left their first estate. You know, like they have an estate sale. Or, wow, he lives in this estate. It's their home. They fell. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved, and after everlasting chains, under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. It's the exact same kind of confirmation we just saw in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6. And then he goes on to say, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. Now, what is notice, this is very important here. We have Sodom and Gomorrah in both instances, in 2 Peter 2, 4 and 6, and also in Jude 6 and 7. We have Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned here. Why is Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned? Well, it's very obvious. Because of the next phrase that we're going to be looking at. Let me just start again. Verse 7 of Jude. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and here it is, and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, what do you mean, going after strange flesh? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, men burning after men. Most likely women after women. Okay, God rained fire and brimstone down. He, he destroyed them. Homosexuality. Most likely he probably had everything going on there. Homo, bi, trans, you name it. They were going after strange flesh. Homosexuality, an abomination in the sight of God. Totally forbidden. <clears throat> Well, what does that have to do with anything? With the angels? The angels were doing the same thing. They were going after strange flesh. They left their first estate. They left their own habitation. They fell and they saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wise all that they chose. They too, in God's eyes, were going after strange flesh. It was an abomination just like a homosexual man going after another homosexual man. It was an abomination. And they were both judged. And in the angel's case, they're in chains of everlasting darkness under the judgment of the great day. Again, I don't know how much more uh, clear we can make it, but we're going to go further. Now, from these two passages, it is clear that Peter and Jude both affirm that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels who committed fornication, who went after strange flesh, Women. Not only does the study of the text in Genesis 6 reveal this plainly, but we have two witnesses from the New Testament between both verses, and they reference Noah's time period and the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. These angel-human hybrids of Genesis 6 are the factual basis for the gods of ancient cultures. 
Now, somebody could say, yeah, but the Bible talks about that the angels are neither married, married or given in marriage. They're not supposed to be. But when you leave your, your first estate and your own habitation, they have the option of doing that. Just like God gives us the free will to either reject him or receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels have that free will too. They're not like, God doesn't like, you know, force you to do things. They left their own habitation. They did something they should have never done. No, they shouldn't have ever uh, procreated with women and took them as wives. And No, but they did. They had that option and they did. And there was a um, the most severe punishment you can imagine because of that. <clears throat> so also I do not believe that the fallen angels, because Julio who wrote me this letter said that the fallen angels are demons, which I see that all the time. Oh, the fallen angels are demons. Fallen angels are demons. Whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't make any scriptural sense at all. And you're going to say, what do you mean? It doesn't make any scriptural sense at all. Think about it. He just told us that the angels that left their first estate and fell are reserved in chains of darkness in hell, in a special compartment of hell called Tartarus, essentially. Well, then what are the demons? Because they can't be the fallen angels. They're in hell. Ever think about that? Well, let's look. I'm going I'm to show you. I do not believe that the fallen angels are demons or evil spirits, as the fallen angels are clearly in hell. But we know from scriptures that demons or evil spirits are real and are not in hell. Let's just look at some of the couple verses. I mean, these are just, there's many, many. I mean, look at all the times Jesus Christ cast out an unclean spirit or a demon or a devil. Or dealt with that. I mean, it happened a whole bunch <laughs> in the New Testament in particular where they really address that a lot more. Matthew 12, 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Now we're going to look at why he can't find rest unless he's in a body. Because it's going to make sense to you real soon. Luke eleven twenty four. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and find none. He saith, I will return unto my house. Where why would he say it's his house? From whence I came out. The human vessel, the human being, is his house. It's where he dwells, that's his home, that's his habitation. And we're gonna look at well, how could that be? It's gonna make perfect sense to you in a minute. So, this being the case. Whatever happened to the spirits of the giants of Genesis 6-4 and also after that of the promised land when they killed them? Whatever happened to those spirits? I mean, they're not fully human and they're not fully fallen angel. Well, where do they go? Hmm, I think it's going to be clear. And again, I use the book of Enoch as a commentary. I don't use it as canon of scripture. I never said that. But, this is about the only thing that would even make sense, because we know the fallen angels are chained in everlasting darkness and hell. So where do we get demons and devils and evil spirits from? The fallen angels are there. The book of Enoch offers an explanation in chapter 15.8. It says, quote, Now the giants, who have been born of spirit and of flesh, shall be called upon the earth evil spirits. And on earth shall be their habitation. Evil spirits shall proceed from their flesh 
Now remember, evil spirits shall proceed from their flesh, essentially when they die. Because they were created from above, from the holy watchers was their beginning and primary foundation. Now, they weren't holy anymore when they procreated, but they were up until the point, I believe, when they took them wives. They still had a chance to turn back. But when they procreated with women, it was most likely, that's it. Okay, you're done. You've, you've chosen your fate as a fallen angel. Evil spirits shall they be upon the earth, and the spirits of the wicked shall they be called. Hmm. The habitation of the spirits of heaven shall be in heaven. Okay, those are the ones that are, they haven't left their first abode, they haven't left their first estate or their habitation. The spirits of heaven, the, the, the habitation of the spirits of heaven shall be heaven, that's their home. But upon the earth shall be the habitation of terrestrial spirits who are born on earth. Where were the giants born? They were born on earth. When they died in the flood, this is where we get the demons and devils and evil spirits. And then more of them died. You know, obviously, when the Jews went in and uh, God gave them favor in the promised land and they killed... And this is why God told them, in many, many instances, to kill every man, woman, child, beast, everything. Everything had been so defiled from these uh, evil, from, from the Nephilim, and they were unredeemable. They, 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 it's not like they could have any chance of ever going to heaven. They were not fully human. They were part fallen angel, part um, human. Well, Jesus Christ didn't come here to pay the price, to pay the sin debt. His finished work didn't cover their sins. He came as a, essentially as a human man. He didn't come as a Nephilim creature to pay their sin debts. His blood doesn't cover their ungodly, wicked, abomination sins. He didn't die on the cross to pay a Nephilim sin debt, meaning a uh, uh, half-fallen angel, half-human. This is why God said when they went into the promised land, go kill, slay every man, woman. And a lot of people say, well, God's so cruel because he did that. Yes, he was purifying the land because they were defiling the land. They were put, bringing a curse on the land. And it had to be totally, totally purged. There was no good in them. They were evil. They were unredeemable. They had to be wiped out. That was the, that was the only remedy that would work. But when they were wiped out, upon the earth shall be the habitation of terrestrial spirits who are born on earth. Evil spirits shall they be upon the earth, and the spirits of the wicked shall they be called. Where else could they come from? The fallen angels were, were in hell. Chained in everlasting darkness. Now, I'm not saying all fallen angels did that either. I know a third of them fell. And you could say, well, it's just the, the third that didn't fall. I don't believe that. I'm not saying a fallen angel can't possess somebody or or that they're not part of the equation in demon possession. And I would say high-level demon possession. I'm not saying fallen angels can't... I don't think they're the primary... When we talk about demons, I think you're talking about the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, of the giants. And this is proof of that. 
Uh, now you could say, well, the whole Book of Enoch is total garbage and I don't believe any of it. No, all I'm telling you is, is the Book of Enoch is just an expanded look at Genesis 6. And the only one I recommend is the blue hardback version that's translated by a Baptist uh, minister or a Baptist press and it has all the KJV references where they'll give a verse and then they'll give um, where that's confirmed in the uh, either New or Old Testament in the King James Bible. They'll give the actual cross-reference Bible verse right there that confirms it. And it really, what it does is it confirms the Bible. Now, I understand there's some things in the book of Enoch that you could look at and say, what does that mean? And that, that looks weird. Okay, I never said it was canon of Scripture. I use it like a commentary. So, I've done a, a teaching on that, and I have an attachment on it I can send you if you like. So, um, just let me make that clear. I'm using it as a commentary. So, now let's go further now. This tells us that the spirit of the of the disembodied Nephilim, the, the Nephilim that were either drowned in the flood or destroyed in the promised land, and or, I'm sure there's been other places in history it's, they've occurred, they are earthbound evil spirits. These same spirits are also subject to the command of the more powerful fallen angels. I believe it is these spirits that are the ones responsible for things like haunting, pretending to be the voices of those who have passed away, you know, with the seances and all that garbage, uh, possession of bodies of people, because they once had bodies and they desire to be in them again. Oh, well, let's get back to that one verse we just talked about. Matthew 12.43. Let's do a little more expanded look at that verse. Matthew 12.43-45 through 45 says, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places... Seeking rest and finding none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Be like somebody that got all the evil spirits cast out of their body and was unsaved. It's like the Holy Spirit's not there. They're just they're just a clean vessel. Spiritually, and I don't mean that means they're perfect, but I mean from a spiritual standpoint, you know, there's no demons or devils, but there's also no Holy Spirit in them either. Next verse. Then he, meaning the evil spirit, then he, then goeth he and taketh himself seven other spirits who also want to inhabit a body more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. Where do they dwell? The guy's body or the woman's body. That had been swept clean. The spirit goes out into dry places seeking to find rest and he finds none. Why? Because think about it. These spirits once occupied a giant's body or a Nephilim's body. But during the flood, they lost that body. The body died. Well, that's where they were used to being. So what do they seek to do? They seek to go into another body where they can find rest. People that have been um, like... You hear about people that got like deliverance and demons cast at them and things of this nature. And I don't recommend doing this, but like people that have like dialogued with them, the deliverance ministers, the demons don't want to come out of the person. They're, they find some form of comfort, and I'm sure it's a perverse comfort, but some form of, of okay, this is my home, I'm possessing this person. I'm going to stay here until they're dead. This is my right to be here. I find some type of 
perverse pleasure, I find some type of rest by being in this human's body. That's where they originally came out of. It was a body. It was a cursed body. It was a Nephilim. But now they're seeking to find another body to inhabit. That's the only place I believe they can really find any kind of peace or rest. Not really peace, but rest. So he goeth and he taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. So he's now he's seven times the child of hell than he was before. So I wanted to clear that up as well. Now, where did this whole sons of Seth, daughters of Cain theory come from that is taught in the modern day cemeteries, I mean seminaries, sorry. I'm not saying they're all terrible but the vast majority, you know, are... This is, this is something that scares the church. This is something where, you know, a lot of times, you know, you hear people don't talk about the blood of Jesus Christ anymore. Oh, that's slaughterhouse religion. Well, the blood of Jesus Christ is essential to covering your sins. I mean, you, you need to understand that if you get saved. You need to understand the concept of the blood that the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross to pay your sin debt. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no payment for the sin without the shedding of blood. He was the perfect lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, and that blood pays your sin debt. That's called, a lot of people, they don't talk about that anymore in the churches. That's called slaughterhouse religion. We don't want to talk about that. It's too gory. Well, this is another subject just like that. People don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. Oh, these fall, no, 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 that's too scary. I don't know, I just don't find it scary. I just find it biblically relevant. And particularly biblically relevant, considering the day and times we're moving into, and considering all the myriad of confirmation that this, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We better get up to speed on this stuff. I mean, do you want to be destroyed for lack of knowledge? Do you want to be totally clueless when when things really start to manifest and go down? And those days are coming? Or would you just, you know, would you rather be prepared and understanding what's going on and not, you know, taken unawares? So, what's widely taught in seminaries is that the sons of God, no, 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 that, that's not fallen angels. That's, that's crazy talk. These were the godly line of Seth. And they came into the daughters of Cain. Oh, wow. And, and again, I, I ask myself, just from that standpoint, looking at what we just looked at, wow, that's a mega, mega leap of logic. Aren't we smart? I mean, they must be way smarter than me, because, I mean, I could take something that seems to be totally obvious in the scriptures, and they could look at the same thing and come to a totally opposite conclusion. But they can only do that through manipulating what the scriptures clearly state, which is what we just clearly looked at. It's simplistic. It's not like so complicated. Salvation's not complicated. For you say by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But people try to turn it into this complicated, convoluted equation that you got to read 14 books about. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
John 3.16. You could go on and on and on. Okay, simplicity. Well, I believe what we just looked at was simplistic. Not that complicated. But when theologians get involved, oh, and their higher learning and their degrees and all this other stuff, what is that? Pride. Pride goes before fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Pride blinds you. Many times, pride blinds you to the obvious. People that are consumed with pride have a demonic problem. And the demons influence their thought patterns. And those are the last people on the planet you want interpreting the Bible for you. But this is what happens. Oh, I follow this guy. Or I follow that woman. Or this one. In other words, it's kind of like they're your spiritual guru or something. I don't ever tell anybody to follow me. I'm just trying to point out the obvious. The Bible says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and that maketh flesh his arm, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm going to lean on the arm of flesh, on this man or this woman, and then whose heart departeth from the Lord. So, cursed be the man that trusteth the man. Okay, you bring a curse on yourself when you do that. I mean, you're trusting a man more than you trust the word of God, in other words. I'm not saying there's not good men or women out there, these types of things, but I'm saying that if you're putting your trust in a man, you're bringing a curse on yourself, the Bible says. And the curse is ultimately going to blind you to the truth. Who maketh flesh his arm, and then what's, then what's the last thing that happens? Whose heart departeth from the Lord. This is why I'm really, really careful about saying, oh yeah, um, just follow that guy. I don't do that. I don't tell anybody to follow me. Man can fail you. Follow the word of God. In the, in the, in the English-speaking language, the King James Bible, don't use these other versions, the NIV or these other ones, or like an NIV that you know has 64, over 64,000 less words than a KJV, which is almost 10% of the total text. You know, and the NIV, which is essentially owned, the rights is owned by Zonderfan, which is owned by HarperCollins. HarperCollins is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who's a essentially mass pornographer, um, one of the most evil men on the planet, um, a member of Rick Warren's church, who also owns HarperCollins, which also publishes the Satanic Bible and all kind of gay how-to manuals. HarperCollins, Zonderfan is a subsidiary of HarperCollins. Meaning HarperCollins owns Zondervan. I, I don't. I don't think you should have a Bible from Zondervan. I don't. I get rid of it. I think, and I've done studies on this. I believe the 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 best. I don't want to say version, but the best KJV you can get is the seventeen sixty nine Cambridge PCE, meaning Pure Cambridge Edition. They are hard to find. I can send you an attachment on it uh, regarding that subject. Okay, I'm not saying all KJVs are irrelevant if it's not that particular version. I'm just saying I believe that is the the best one available. A pure Cambridge edition, um, and they're not that easy to find. But if you were Satan, wouldn't you make it kind of hard to find? Wouldn't you want to attack the Word of God more than any other thing, particularly in the end times, so people would be not even half? the word of God, they have all these other false perversions. I've done tons of teachings on this and I just can't get into it right now. But if you have any doubts about that, just key in KJV in the search box, um, continuefortruth.com, 
I've done like a seven-part teaching on the KJV, and then other teachings on the NKJV, New King James Version, which I do not recommend either, the NIV, and these types of things. The Bible says, He that judgeth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him, which is what a lot of people do. They're like, I don't care. You know, when I used to read an NIV in those, I didn't want to read a KJV either. I didn't. I didn't. I like, it's like old English. I, I, don't, I don't understand it, and this and that. Now it's the only thing I would want to read, and I don't feel that way anymore. Maybe it was something spiritual that was blinding me to it. Yeah, it sure was. And if the Holy Spirit's your teacher and your guide, and your guide, then he can show you you know, that's who you want to rely on. Not your own interpretation anyway. Well, I don't understand the words. Or whatever. Uh, you'd be surprised what you can understand when the Holy Spirit's assisting you. Anyway, that's a whole other subject. But, let's go further. Sons of Seth and daughters of Cain theory refuted. That's why. And August, Augustine of Hippo warning. Okay, It all is related. And you'll see why. This is by a guy named Douglas Hamp. And, um... I added to this and took a little bit away just to kind of make hone it down a little bit more. The Bible is replete with evidence that the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and also in Job that we quoted, are fallen angels. All of the ancient Jewish and anti-Nicene Christian commentators believed the sons of God to be referring to fallen angels. Now, shouldn't that tell us something right there? All of the ancient Jewish and the anti-Nicene Christian commentaries believe the sons of God to be referring to fallen angels. Are, are we better than they in the end times and then the Laodicean church age? When God describes the church essentially as lukewarm, they're neither hot nor cold, yet they, need, they think they're in need of nothing? And they're blind and na- naked and wretched before God's eyes, yet they think they're in need of nothing? And God's going to vomit them out of his mouth? Oh yeah, that's the, that's the church age I would want to go to to get the truth. Or would it, would it be more the, um, the Bible talks about to stand thee in the old paths wherein is wisdom. This is what was commonly believed up until when the Catholics got involved and, and started this godly line of Seth, daughters of Cain garbage theory, which is now widely taught in the seminaries. And that's why the type of information that I get into nowadays, which a lot of it has to do with fallen angels and UFOs and a lot of this stuff, that's why so heavenly keep coming back to it, because it's not being taught in the churches. For, for the most part. They just ignore it. Oh, nothing will ever come of any of that. Hollywood's just spent billions and billions and billions brainwashing people for nothing. Just for our mere entertainment. <laughs> I don't think so. So, let's talk about Augustine of Hippo. Um, the first, as far as we can see, to definitively deny the sons of God as being angels was Augustine of Hippo of the 5th century. Approximately 75 years after the drafting of the Nicene Creed, Catholic document, Augustine did much to spiritualize the history of the Bible and twist a simple, straightforward reading of the Bible. Now, again, what I just, what I just read before, that was pretty simple and straightforward. I mean, if you had a Bible and you were comparing Scripture to Scripture, I think it would be very easy to come to the conclusion that we just came to. But see, these guys, particularly Catholics, and do you think they're guided by God? How could a Catholic theologian be guided by God? If that was the case, wouldn't God tell him to get out of that devil cult, number one, or give him a strong conviction to do so? Oh no, he stayed in it. He was guided of God. 
Give me a break. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, is what I would say. Augustine did much to spiritualize the history of the Bible. And twist simple, straightforward readings of the Bible. His method of Bible interpretation has made a profound impact and legacy remains even to this day. I can't tell you how many people in the last year have emailed me stuff about Augustine of Hippo promoting him. I'm like, dude, the guy was a Catholic theologian. Isn't there a problem there? And we're going to look at that more. It's unbelievable to me. St. Augustine, see, they call him a saint now. The Catholics call him a saint. He was canonized. That means they put him in a, after he was dead, they put him in a canon and like they do at the, the uh, fairs or at the uh, circuses. They blow him out of a canon. That's called canonization. Just kidding. Teasing. Teasing. Anyway, um, St. Augustine is considered one of the greatest of all Catholic saints. Oh, hey, I mean, right there alone, I got my double stamp of approval on this. He is revered. Revered. Which is where we get the word reverend. Which is only used one time in the Bible where it says, in reference to God, holy and reverend is he. And yet these wonderful, uh, whatever, men of God take on the title of reverend. It's not a biblical title for a man. Uh -uh, Neither is father. The Bible says, call no man father but your father in heaven. And it only refers to reverend as God in the Bible one time. (laughs) I don't want anybody calling me reverend. If I got what I deserved, I'd get death and hell, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord of mercy. Anyway, he is revered by both Roman Catholics and many Protestants. I mean, hey, that's a marriage made in hell right there. Catholics and Protestants together, which there is a gigantic push for that. The Catholics saying, we're the mother church that you Protestants came out of because you were protesting. You were bad little children. And now you need to come back to us because we're the mother church. And they're going back to the Catholicism in droves. And it's only going to get worse with all the lying signs and wonders and miracles that Catholics can offer. And also a lot of those same lying signs and wonders and miracles are happening to the Protestant denominations, which are telling them to go back to the original poor mother church of Catholicism. I wonder who's behind all those demonic apparitions. Hmm. So, he's revered by both Roman Catholics and many Protestants, and especially by Calvinists and Lutherans. Yes, Calvinists. Who are the main ones that have been promoting Augustine of Hippo to me. I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm absolutely amazed when I get these emails. Promoting Augustine of Hippo, a Catholic theologian, and it's because of their Calvinistic background that they're falling into this stuff. Not only are they following John Calvin, who I could do a whole teaching exposing him as well, but they're following. Then they're they're following another man, a Catholic, who who John Calvin followed, because that's where that's how the Calvinists got into this stuff. John Calvin embraced the teachings of Augustine of Hippo. Dr. R.C. Sproul, a leading Calvinist theologian and writer in the U.S., has written that, that he, meaning Sproul, is an Augustinian. Are you kidding me? Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and that maketh flesh his arm and his heart departed from the Lord. I mean, I know this is going to get me some hate mail, but I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize for the obvious. I'm doing what I should be doing. I'm marking them 
which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and I'm avoiding them. The Bible says that clearly in Romans uh, in Romans 17. I'm sorry, that, that was Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. Uh, again, let me just read the, the full verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches which is really pertinent to what we're going to be talking about. Good words and fair speeches. Deceive the hearts of the simple. That's what I think about when I read these, these verses from Augustine of Hippo and John Calvin as well. So what, it's obvious. They're deception. I'm not saying that there's everything that ever came out of their mouth was false. But remember, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It doesn't take a whole lot of bad doctrine. It doesn't take, I mean, rat poison is 99.9% good food. And like 0.1% poison. Uh, usually they use, uh, or at least in times past, they use sodium fluoride, which is what they put in your toothpaste. And I'm not lying. That's what they use as rat poison. Sodium fluoride. Same stuff they put in your toothpaste. Anyway. Um, just look at your toothpaste thing. And it says if you swallow, if you have a fluoridated toothpaste, if you swallow more than a pea-sized amount, call poison control. It says it right on the back of your tooth. And you're putting that stuff in your mouth, the most highly absorbable part in your body. Well, a little leaven leaven at the whole lump. So it's very similar to that. It doesn't take a lot of poison to get the job done. So, the, um, let's see here. So, Augustine of Hippo was the first to deny the sons of God as being angels in, around the 5th century. Okay? In his writings, outside of his speculations on predestination, St. Augustine, I hate to call him St. Augustine, but Augustine was generally, the Bible says a born-again Bible-believing Christian is a saint, essentially. You know, it's not like some, oh no, it's only a saint if the Catholics can canonize you. And, and, you know, that's, that's garbage. That's more gross twisting of scripture by the Catholics that has no that has no basis in scripture anyway let's go further in his writings outside of speculations on predestination Augustine was generally reflecting the Catholic consensus of the time see there were certain things that John Calvin and other people looked at that Augustine said that they agreed with things like predestination and things of this nature so it's almost like they they, you know, accepted him as a, uh, like a man of God, I guess, essentially, because there were certain things that he said that they agreed with. So, Augustine was generally reflecting of the Catholic consensus of the time, and the beliefs which he held as the Catholic bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Here are some Catholic beliefs of Aurelius Augustine, the Catholic bishop of Hippo. That's his full name, Aurelius Augustine, Catholic Bishop. Here's some of the things that this Augustine of Hippo believed in. Okay, Now, I believe this article that I'm quoting from right now was actually written by, I believe, a Catholic. So it wasn't like he was going against him. Okay, The canon of Scripture includes the Septuagint Old Testament canon, the Deuterocanonicals and the Apocrypha. Now, what that essentially means, the Deuterocanonicals, means like the Book of Maccabees, 
and those other Catholic books that are extra-biblical, that many times contradict the Bible, and also the Apocrypha, which is not good, okay? Well, that's one of the things he believed in. He also believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. Actually, they don't refer to it as the Lord's Supper. That's what they do at Mass. Well, what is that? That's the horrific doctrine of transubstantiation, where Catholics believe and are taught that the Catholic priests have the literal power to turn the Catholic communion host, which they adore, which they literally worship in that monstrance, they worship it like a god. Why? Because they believe that the Catholic priests have the literal power to turn that Catholic communion host into the literal body of Jesus Christ. Not not the symbolic body. The literal body. Meaning he's like he's re-crucified on the cross. That's why when you go to a Catholic church, Christ is on the cross because he's continually being re-crucified to continually pay for the sin debt of the Catholics. He has to be re-crucified every time they go to Mass. Even though Jesus Christ said it is finished, it's done. And he's not on the cross anymore. But it's all all part of the works-based, earning your way, seventh sacrament-keeping garbage that they believe going to heaven. And the whole doctrine of purgatory and limbo and all these other unbiblical things that the Bible never ever mentions. So they, Augustine believed in, in the doctrine of transubstantiation. But turning, I only talked about the Catholic communion host. They also believe that they, the Catholic priest can turn the um, wine into the literal, not symbolic, but literal blood of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. It's totally blasphemous. What's another thing you believe? Necessity of the Lord's Supper for salvation. You have to do the Lord's Supper to be saved. It's something we should be doing. Just like baptism. But, I mean, like the thief on the cross, when he was at, he never had a chance to take the Lord's Supper or get baptized. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying there's certain, you know, but are we going to add works to salvation now? Next point. Purgatory and praying for the dead departed. Hey, listen, once you die, your fate's sealed. It is appointed that a man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. You either go to heaven or hell. No amount of praying once you die is going to either get you in or out of hell or in or out of purgatory. But that's what the Catholics teach. Because, see, you can't fully pay your sin debt as a Catholic. You have to have, you know, other people helping you out, other people praying for the dead. You've got to go to purgatory to, to serve out whatever you could, you know, account for in this life. It's garbage. It's like the blood of Jesus Christ is of no effect to the Catholics. No, why? Because it's a works-based religion. Just like all other isms of the world. Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, you know. They're all isms. They're all works-based. You all get to where you're trying to get through works. Even Luciferianism and Satanism. They believe that, well, we'll go to hell. But we'll we'll have a higher place in hell the, the, the more wickedly we behave. Well, you, you'll have a lower place in hell, the more wickedly you behave, I would imagine the punishment will be greater, but they're all works-based religions. And it's there's only two religions in the world. There's your isms, which all believe in works-based to get to heaven because the blood of Jesus Christ is not enough to atone for your sins. His finished work on the cross is not enough to pay your, your sin. That is not enough to get uh, you know get you to heaven. And then there's true Bible-believing Christianity. 
You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay. Now, works will follow. A true born-again Bible-believing Christian, you shall know them by their fruit, but works aren't what gets you saved. There's a, there's a big difference there. Because if you think you're earning your way to heaven, you're sadly mistaken. So, uh, what was the next thing he believed in? He believed in the authority of the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know. And you've got Calvinists and other people that call themselves Bible-believing Christians following this guy? What else did he believe in? Apostolic succession. He also believed in the sacrament of penance. The sacrament. Like penance? Oh, go say 20 Hail Marys because you committed this sin. Oh, don't go to Jesus Christ. Don't come boldly before the throne of grace to make a request. No, no, don't, don't, don't go before the Lord Jesus Christ and, and ask him to forgive you of your sins. To ask Father God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you. No, 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 no. You need to, you need to do works. You need to, you know, the monks would even flagellate themselves and, you know, hit themselves with whips and stuff like that. And people play, pray their, their Hail Marys or they pray before their particular little Catholic idol statue saint. Isn't it funny that they removed that commandment out of the Bible, the Catholics, about bowing themselves down under graven images? I believe it was the second commandment. They, they removed that from their Ten Commandments. And then they split, I believe, the Ninth Commandment in two. I'm not making this stuff up. They did that so that they wouldn't have to worry about that commandment because then they couldn't have all their idols that they pray to and they have out in their front lawns and stuff. All and more just abominations from the pit of hell. I mean, don't think I'm... I'm biased here, or anything like that. I mean, come on. Teasing. Anyway, he also believed that Mary was ever a virgin, even though she had children after Jesus, with Joseph. Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus Christ. Okay, but she did have children. Jesus had brothers. Jesus had that, okay, afterward. But, it wasn't from Joseph. But he believed she was ever a virgin. And that's where they get in the whole reverence of Mary, the mother of God, the, the whole, now we have all these apparitions of Mary, and, and now we have Mary being pronounced by the Catholic Church as co-redemptrix. Meaning, they have stated that they believe Mary is essential to salvation as Jesus is. It's co, she's co-redeemer. The way the, Bof, the Boston Catechism Kism is taught is it shows Jesus on a throne just enraged and Mary beside him as the only one that a Catholic can go to really to to she we go through the Catholics go through Mary to get to Jesus in other words because she's the only one that can appease her son of his rage toward our sin that's how it's portrayed I mean, you know, these are all things I've covered in the past, but I'm just touching on them again. Anyway, that's what good, this, this good old Augustine of Hippo, who was the one, the original one that really started teaching the sons of Seth, daughters of Cain garbage. After looking at these beliefs, if someone claimed to be an Augustinian, I think it was rather obvious that they would not, that they would not be a Calvinist or a Christian, but actually a Catholic. Look at what boat you're putting yourself in if you say you follow Augustine. Very dangerous stuff here. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Galatians 4.16? Because that's what I'm telling you, the truth. You may say I'm lying, somebody that's enraged about what I'm saying, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. It's obviously the truth. I think it is rather obvious that they would 
not be a Calvinist or a Christian, but a Catholic. Although some Protestant denominations, such as Lutherans, may accept these beliefs. I mean, Lutherans are just about half Catholics anyway. I've been in their churches before. They've got a lot of the same accoutrements and a lot of the same garbage that they do. No Protestant denomination, such as um, Lutherans, no, no Protestant denomination will accept them all, though, and all their beliefs. Calvinists reject every single one of these beliefs of Augustine that I just went over. If they, if anyone was to preach all these beliefs in a, let's say, a Calvinistic church, or a church that you know follows John Calvin, you know, let's say a Baptist church that follows John Calvin, because that's probably your most prevalent or one of them. If anyone were to preach all these beliefs of Augustine in a Christian church or a Calvinistic church, he would immediately be branded as an arch heretic. Yet many Christians quote Augustine and consider him a hero. A hero is a heretic? I mean, I'm just stating the obvious here. Many centuries after Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, another Catholic, a doctor of, Ca- of the Catholic Church in the 13th century, quotes in his Magnus Opum, Opus, meaning great work, Summa Theologica, that's his Magnus Opus, from Augustine, he quotes, Thomas Aquinas quotes from Augustine's work, the City of God, which was one of the things he wrote. He, uh, and he, what does he quote Augustine regarding the City of God? He quotes him regarding the Sons of Seth theory. Okay, now we're getting this from Catholics. Demon-led Catholics. Many persons affirm that they have had the experience or have heard from such as have experienced it that satyrs and fawns, you know, satyrs and fawns, the mythical creatures, of whom... Common folk call incubi have often presented themselves before women and have sought and procured intercourse with them. This stuff still happens today. You ever heard of incubus and succubus? The spirits that appear, um, succubus are the ones that appear to men at night and have sex with them. And many times they appear as beautiful women and then, then as soon as they've actually had sexual intercourse, they actually trans, many times they'll transform into what they really look like which are these hideous demonic creatures. I'm telling you, people, I've had people email me about this who are plagued with this stuff. I said in my, the attachment I've got on dealing with evil entities. I mean, these people aren't lying to me. And it's not just them, it's thousands of people. It's real, and it was real back then. So let me just read this again. This is from St. Thomas Aquinas. Many persons affirm that they have had experience or have heard from such as I've experienced it with satyrs and fawns with whom the, the common folk call incubi. Now these are the ones that would appear to women to have. I just got an email a week ago from a listener who was having a problem with this. Or maybe it was a couple weeks. And in that particular time frame, they typically would appear as satyrs or fawns. I believe a lot of times these spirits will transform themselves into things that are culturally acceptable for the day or, or whatever their perception would be. And have often presented themselves before women, these incubi, and have sought and procured intercourse with them. Hence, it is folly to deny it. In other words, there were so many people that this, this was happening to, we can't deny it. 
The church would probably deny it today, though. Okay, I'm sorry. I just checked, and I'm already over my time limit for this part. So I didn't really want to turn this into a two-part thing, but I'm going to have to. So I'm going to go to part two here, and I'll probably just keep this as a dedicated teaching, this particular thing, and then we'll go to more of the current events in parts three and four. Okay, so God bless you, and we'll see you in part two.